Hello, forget the uncertainty. Today we're looking to 2017 with new technology and the hope of attracting new bloods into agriculture. Rainwater falls from the sky for nothing. It costs you nothing to use it. So the only cost is, is putting that infrastructure in. But once the infrastructure's in, that's many, many years of you know, free water. They are all wanting this scheme to succeed. They need more young people knowing about agricultural engineering as a career. They want them to come into it. They want them well trained. Plus on the programme this week, we'll hear reaction to what the Chancellor had to say in his first, and as it turned out, last autumn statement. We feel it's absolutely essential that at every point in this they rule proof each of their policies to ensure that um, there isn't a disadvantage for those who are operating the whole plethora of businesses as we know in, in rural areas. Sunday, November 27th, 2016. This is the Farming Programme with Sean Dunderdale. It was a busy Wednesday. Wednesday just gone in, in the world of agriculture anyway. I, mean, I know every day is busy in farming, but let's say for events discussing agriculture, Wednesday was quite busy then. Chancellor Philip Hammond made his autumn statement, which becomes the budget proper from next November. It was also day one of the Midlands Machinery Show and also the annual Agribiz Conference at the East of England Showground. There, as you might imagine, Brexit was the main talking point, though uh, if you're hoping for clarity from the man sent from DEFRA in place of Farm Minister George Eustace, you were left hoping. Indeed, the presentation ended with just a 22-word summary, which said there's a lot of complex preparatory work going on, and we're listening, and not much more. Now, while there is still uncertainty over Brexit, it's good to report that at the Midlands Machinery Show this week, there was a fair degree of optimism and looking ahead to the new year. New technology was also on show. Water harvesting firm GRH Water launched its latest initiative, a zero-energy water pump. Michael Jordan has told me more about it. It's a pump that uses the power of water going into it to actually increase the pressure, so it's a double venturi valve. Um, So you have a head of water going into that pump, and then it, it doubles that pressure and then pumps it out the other side. Um, so it's all done on gravity falls and everything. So there's actual no cost to run it at all, hence the reason why it's zero energy. They're basically just put in the ground with the head of water behind it and off you go. And it's, it's, I mean, it's something that is needed now, isn't it, more than ever, really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, with everything that is going on in the world, you know, costs going up, if you've got diesel, petrol or electric pumps now that, you know, with all those costs going through the roof and you're running those 24 hours a day, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a lot of money to spend out just to transfer water from one place to another. We do rainwater harvesting, so it's water, so it's sort of tying into the whole thing about water transfer and giving a complete solution at the end of the day. Rather than just coming in and giving one part of the infrastructure, we can give them the whole infrastructure and zero energy pumping drops into line with a lot of the products we do because obviously saving water, you know, you've got the green sort of side to that as well, the environmental side, zero energy pumping as well. So if there is no electric around, you can drop a pump in the ground and off you go. So, um, yeah, it all sort of ties in nicely with our sort of business model. Mains water is hard, um, rainwater soft, rainwater falls from the sky for nothing. It costs you nothing to use it. Um, so the only cost is, is putting that infrastructure in. But once the infrastructure's in, that's many, many years of uh, you know free water and good quality water, especially if you look at spraying. We'll take that as an example. Less conditioners, better reaction to chemicals. You know, the list goes on. So you're not just saving on your water. You're also saving on expenditure, 
labour, time, you know, all these things everyone's trying to grab back are all included in fitting rainwater harvesting. And it is crazy, isn't it? There are still people, it is falling from the sky, it is free, but still people are spending a lot of money, uh, you know, sorting water out in different ways. Yeah, I think my personal view is, is all farms traditionally used to pop up around a water source because there was no mains. Then suddenly we got mains water and you turn a tap on, you got mains water. Everyone was on rates, so you you spent X amount a year and you could have that tap running 24 hours a day. Now everyone's on metered water and the price of per cube of water is going up and suddenly I think certain people have lost that sort of how do we get water for nothing and we've got the solution. Michael Jordan from JRH Water. By uh, pure coincidence, ironically, we were out in the rain while (laughs) carrying out that uh, conversation. (laughs) He needs the water. Uh, Now, while I was chatting to Michael in Newark on Wednesday, the Chancellor, Philip Hammond, was on his feet in Parliament outlining his autumn statement. But just what did it mean for agriculture? The NFU described it as positive in parts, but was disappointed that it fell short of delivering measures that will enable farm businesses to maximise their potential. It's a similar message from the CLA's Ben Underwood. Well, um, I think the first thing to say, it's hard to see from this statement how rural businesses fit into the Chancellor's vision for Britain's economic future. And by that, I mean... A lot of the investments he, he announced you know, are overwhelmingly targeted at improving facilities within and connections between our cities and urban areas, with perhaps less emphasis on, on the rural areas. Um, it does seem very weighted towards city life, doesn't it? Which, you know, for, for rural parts is not ideal. Yes, absolutely. Rural areas must receive the right proportionate share of spending and um, We sometimes use the uh, analogy that the Chancellor's road and rail plans must not lead to economic opportunity hurtling past rural areas. Um, You know, we we have made a very strong case to say that a thriving rural economy um, is is a massive boost to the overall economy of the UK and and, um, should all policies should be rural-proofed accordingly. I mean, if we look at some of the policies, I mean, he, he, you know, he's, he's announced plans about affordable housing or digital connectivity. I mean, uh, plans for 5G, and I'm sure we've got listeners to this programme would, would love 1G, never mind uh, 5G. Uh, th- those kind of things, they just don't go quite far enough for, for what we want in rural parts, do they? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. There's little comfort in this for, for rural people struggling to get minimum connection speeds. Um, connecting the final 5% of rural communities and businesses has got to remain the priority. Um, and, and as you suggested there, a lot of the announcement around 5G was frankly just improving areas that already have, in our mind, quite good connectivity. Um, and so, again, we will be continuing our campaign to, to make sure it's that final 5% um, that, that, that get greater speeds as soon as possible. And on, on affordable housing, I know it is a positive sign that there is this, what, £1.4 billion boost. The CLA has been working hard, hasn't it, to, to try and um, make sure that, you know, schemes for rural landowners is, is, is you know, benefiting all, really. Absolutely. And, and I think the £1.4 is obviously a good start, but there's a lot more that they can do in terms of cutting red tape and increasing access to funding for those private landowners seeking to build, convert and manage their own affordable housing in rural areas. Um, make no mistake, landowners are a crucial part to the solution of the housing crisis we face. Uh, we're, we're certainly up for it. We're trying to, to negotiate and improve and, and streamline the process. Um, and we hope that the government certainly stands up and, and, and tries to remove some of those current barriers.
and the 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 plan for um, increasing the rural rate relief um, that's going to help a small amount of businesses, but for for many rural businesses, it, it's not it's not really going to benefit them, is it? No, um, it, it isn't. And actually, whilst that makes a very good headline, rural rate relief 100%, as you've just alluded to, that's, uh, there's some stiff criteria surrounding that. I won't go into the detail now, but it, it's not going to impact a huge number of businesses, even though it is welcome. Uh, of course, what we're also facing at the moment is the increase in rateable values from the uh, recent um, re-evaluation process. Uh, we're pleased that they're looking at phasing those changes in um, rates, uh, so it's not a sort of cliff-edge effect. But even so, we will be continuing to fight against business rates in rural areas that, frankly, put a stopper and render small rural businesses uneconomic. Um, and that, that really shouldn't be uh, the case, and certainly, I believe, isn't the focus of the government. And so we continue to highlight that as a challenge. So if uh, Mr Hammond was uh, to be listening to the programme uh, this morning, maybe the podcast, uh, what would your message be to him? Uh, our message would be is continu- continuing to uh, rural-proof these issues. As we've started here today talking about the fact that this was a very urban-focused uh, budget, um, it, it, uh, we feel it's absolutely essential that at every point in this they rural-proof each of their policies to ensure that... Um, there isn't a disadvantage for those who are operating the whole plethora of, sort of businesses, as we know, in, in rural areas. Um, and so you know, there's a long way to go. Um, and certainly with the background of Brexit and everything else, we do have an opportunity now to, to really make the strong case for, for the impact the rural economy has on, on, on UK PLC. Ben Underwood from the CLA. Back to the Agribiz conference then. And among the talking points was the need for more investment in agriculture, especially in training. It was claimed agriculture has the lowest skills and training investment of any industry sector in the UK, and that's affecting productivity. Well, at the Midlands Machinery Show, there was a similar concern and a need to attract more to the industry, especially agricultural engineering. Jeffrey Bond is president of the Newark and Nottinghamshire Agricultural Society. There's two sides to the scheme that uh, I've set up during my year as president. Uh, One is a traineeship, and this summer's seen some four youngsters from Nottinghamshire schools getting placements about a week or so with agricultural engineering companies in the county. So they get to know about agricultural engineering as a career, and we want to push that with more schools. The other side of the coin is the more formal apprenticeship side. And we awarded two apprenticeships in May at the show, and they're getting on extremely well. And the money that we've given to them as the award enables them to buy a toolkit. They have their own toolkit, which they keep with them probably for the rest of their careers and helps them greatly. And today, at the Midlands Machinery Show, we shall later today be awarding two more uh, uh, apprenticeships. Uh, This time, not to people from Nottinghamshire, but we've gone uh, almost into Leicestershire so that we're truly a uh, Midlands-based initiative. And Roy Stanley and Harry Mayfield are two 18-year-olds who are on the threshold of their apprenticeships and later in the day I should have the pleasure of awarding them with the certificate, the Midlands Agricultural Engineering Apprenticeship Award. Everybody I've seen today, many agricultural engineering companies, without exception, they are all wanting this scheme to succeed. They need more young people knowing about agricultural engineering as a career. They want them to come into it. They want them well-trained. So there's huge support for this idea, which I hope will expand to other agricultural societies around the country. I know Lincolnshire are going to do it. There are friends down in Dorset wanting to do it. And the whole thrust is to get schools 
to appreciate that there is a great career for young people in agricultural engineering and doing apprenticeships. It is, they are the future, aren't they? And it's important they get, get, get involved. And as you say, the companies here today, they want that involvement. They want that new blood going in, don't they? Absolutely. And of course, a lot of youngsters go to university, sometimes without thinking too much about it, get a degree that's not that useful to them, build up a big debt. Here they can get a career. They've got the apprenticeship. They can go, still go on to do a degree if they want to places like Harper Adams. Uh, but I think they have a better start and the opportunity uh, of a job at the end of the piece. And I think that's very important. Geoffrey Bond there with a new idea to get fresh blood involved in agricultural engineering. He's hoping the idea could, as he said, well extend to other parts of the country as well. Good morning, I'm Sean Dunderdale. We've uh, detailed weather soon. First, we've kept you waiting long enough. It's time for our weekly experts. First, agronomy and I'll catch up with Sean Sparling. Yes, morning, Sean. Well, I could go on Mastermind with my specialised subject of the bleeding obvious because it is wet out here. The drains, the rivers, the ditches, all the drainage channels are now running full hole for the first time, really, this season. Um, I came over Bardney Bridge on Thursday morning and uh, it was like the Mississippi Delta coming over that. That's as wide as I've seen it for a while. Um, and that really has been the week. We didn't get it hit as hard as they did in the southeast of the country where they took the full force of that storm. But certainly by Monday afternoon, we were getting very wet here. I was down in the Grantham area where I believe they took between 25 and 35 millimetres of rain, depending upon where you were. And that's kind of reflected across the county. The variation um, around Horncastle area is anything from 12 to 20 millimetres of rain. You go to Lincoln, it was anywhere between 15 and 25 millimetres of rain. Out where I live, which is halfway between Market Raisin and Caister, I took 28.4 millimetres of rain between 6 o'clock Monday morning and 6 o'clock Tuesday morning. And no more than three miles away from me on the top of the Wolds, uh, I can see one of my farms up there, uh, they took in excess of 50 millimetres of rain. So the net result of that is things are very wet. If you had fields which uh, were, here we go, especially subject again, if you had fields which were ready for you to go drilling once the conditions came right, I think it's fair to say you won't be doing a lot with those now until the spring. Um, also bear in mind, of course, you can drill winter cereals right into February uh, and they'll probably out-yield a true spring wheat that's drilled in, Feb um, in February. Um, but remember, if you've got Austral Plus on the seed for wheat bullfly, you cannot drill that after the 1st of January, so you need to revisit your plans. But just take a positive from it, because if things are so wet you can't drill and it's in blackgrass land, then the chances are that if you give it two or three more months and you put it in with a spring crop, you'll be able to get a good flush of that blackgrass out of the way with glyphosate before you actually put a crop in the ground. So you have to take the positives out of all of that. Obviously slugs, now it's come wet, the slugs will move back up to the top. It's a little milder than it was last week, but I understand things are going to stay cold. Um, so slugs will be an issue, although colder it gets, the further down in the profile they go. So keep those slug traps out, Keep looking, keep monitoring, and if you do go, then make sure you're within the rules for metaldehyde and switch into ferric phosphate should you need to. And also, if you spill some slug pellets near a drain or you happen to wash out your motorbike after slug pelleting, 
and you're anywhere near a drain and you know you're putting metaldehyde into the water, then just ring the EA and they can allow for that in abstraction. Uh, just as long as they're aware, we can keep in front of it. Um, and that's what stewardship is all about, really. Also, there is this phenomena out in the field where we're seeing quite a lot of yellowing in cereal crops now. Some of that will be nitrogen deficiency, but... I would suggest that quite a bit of it will be washed down of herbicide because as you put your pre-em on to some of these fields over the last uh, three or four weeks, um, even longer ago than that, it'll put a barrier of about two inches in the top of the soil. And when you get this sort of quantity of rain, it'll wash it down the profile and it starts to get into where the wheat roots are. That's why you start to see these effects from DFF, flufenacet, pendimethalin, prosulfocarb, uh, flupisulfur. On all of those things, you'll start to see yellowing within the leaves and whitening. It is transient. It will grow out of it, but you're going to see it for weeks because until the new leaves grow bigger than the older leaves, which are the ones that are affected, that yellow is going to be the uh, predominant colour in the field. So there's not a lot you can do. Just take solace from the fact that if it's doing that to the cereal, it'll be doing that to the weeds and the black grass as well. Um, we mentioned slug pellets. Just while I'm thinking about it, the 26th of November, there is uh, a critical date. You have to have all application equipment tested and certified by then. The National Sprayer Testing Scheme um, 26th November and slug pelleters come under that heading they apply pesticides therefore they must be tested um, if they're five years or older they need that certification by the 26th of November we're a bit late now uh, talking about this today but you should have been on it really um, and also just bear in mind that application of fungicide on oilseed rape if you haven't already done it yes you can mix it with propizamide but you're asking for something of a miracle if you're expecting the propizomide to make its way to the floor because you've got a thick canopy and the fungicide to stay on the leaf because you need it to be on the leaf. So what I would say is if you are mixing fungicide in, make sure that you spray on a day that's conducive to fungicide use and keep your water volumes up because, um, you know, you need good coverage. And if you've got propizomide in there and you're applying to a dryish leaf, it's not going to make its way down to the floor as quickly as it needs to. Um, so apart from that, very little in the way of bugs in winter cereals at the moment. Haven't seen a lot of rape winter stem weevil. Remember that you're wasting your time if you're going to go out and put an insecticide on for cabbage stem flea beetle larvae because they're in the stem and you are very unlikely to do any good save your money and don't just put recreational applications of insecticides on sean sparling sparling agronomy services out in the field back in the warmth it's henry young from open field this week good morning the wheat markets uh, seems to be a bit of a standard thing at the moment being driven by currency having a bit of a look at the world wheat recently we've obviously seen the southern hemisphere harvest starting uh, in australia they're reporting uh, some sketchy wheat harvests, uh, obviously with lower protein, so this this will all come out in the markets. Uh, it could be interesting for India, who is looking for milling wheat, and also um, the Chinese rumours of lack of protein running out. So this could be an interesting game kind of later on in the second half of the season. Uh, there's been some changes following the USDA report uh, about the wheat numbers, uh, which have been adjusted with the carry-in domestic and also trade, resulting in the carry-out from last year of 249 million tonnes. This is a record large. The majority of the stocks are in China and also um, the US. Uh, The quality profile of wheat um, is consistently under scrutiny with traders, not 100% confident of which destination certain shipments are going to be coming from. This could be interesting with with tenders. As we know, uh, Egypt, one of the biggest um, importers of wheat, 
could be interesting there. We are seeing Egypt uh, back in the news for finance reasons wise uh, because they've devalued their pound. And this is going to have an uh, an impact um, on private buyers within the country. And also the interest rates within Egypt are currently sitting at 20%. So that's not very good for them. Having a look at Europe, the total wheat crop is smaller than previous years at 145 million tonnes. So EU EU exports remain a good uh, on a good pace at the moment, slightly ahead of last year, which is good. Can this carry on? We'll wait and see. Just a quick note about the EU maize crop. Uh, it's being brought into question uh, at the moment with um, kind of sub six, uh, 60 million tonnes. This is due to a loss of the, um, of the French yields. It's going to cause a bit of an issue about what is going where and feed rations and bits and pieces as well. The UK uh, is shipped close to 800,000 tonnes by the end of October. This is well ahead of last year, where last year we'd only shipped 535 tonnes at the same period. Um, So having a bit of a look at the wheat um, and also feed wheat, it's important to look at the usage at this stage. Early part of the season, wheat was being maximised in the rations. This is now being swung back to the barley because of the wider spread within the barley and the wheat. So having a bit of a look at the prices... December is currently trading 136 to 139, March 17, 136 to 140, May 17, 137 to 141, November 17, 128 to 132. The feed barley market, just having a bit of a look at this market, it is seeing some limited demand at the moment from Europe, from EU countries. They do have their own um, supplies of it. So there still needs to be some exports done on it, but it's going to be now become more of a domestic uh, market for this. Just looking worldwide on this, Australia seems to be having the same barley issues that we had early on in the season with their winters, uh, which is going to cause some separation in their crops and also on the storage. Australia do need to ship a good amount of their export uh, of their um, of their barley this year, exports to Saudi Arabia and China, which they standardly do, but it's going to become a, a game of hunt the hunt the buyer. So having a bit of a look at those prices: December 114 to 118, March 17 120 to 121. May 17, 121 to 122. November 17, 112 to 113. Just a quick look at the malting barley market. Markets have remained um, supported by short trades of their positions. This has been the case with some uh, for some time. Market directions uh, keeping up with the EU FOB values. Something to note at the moment, if you're storing malting barley, please make sure you keep, uh, keep an eye on the moisture, germination in the stores. Starting to see a few rejections on this, it may cause issues later on in the season. Premiums for malting barley currently between uh, twelve to seventeen pounds for winters and twenty-five to thirty for springs. So there is a bit good premium there. The oilseed rate market. There's some uncertainty about the soybean market. Funds have been long of this for quite a long time in the Chicago market, uh, and they're happy to sit with these longs. But may this change if we see an interest rate change. That is affecting the other markets as well. Having a bit of a look at the canola harvest in Australia, well underway. We are seeing some frost in that country. Is this going to be some crop losses? Australia is a very big country. Most of their um, canola is growing up in um, Western Australia, which doesn't seem to be affected so much. So we'll see what shipments are going to be heading our way into the EU. This may affect the price, but again, wait and see. Um, the, within the UK, we've seen the, the farmer holding the, holding the, um, the oil seed rate, which is pushing that price up. Um, on the back of um, just the US uh, government has released its final requirements for bio uh, for biofuel uh, for next year, and it's actually upped it up at 19.28 billion gallons. This uh, saw saw a surge in that market, 
Uh, so the the Chicago market also dragged up the Matif market. This could be a good uh, good thing for us. So we'll wait and see. Having a bit of a look at those prices: December three hundred and forty, March seventeen three hundred and forty two, May seventeen three hundred and forty four, Harvest three hundred and fifteen, and November seventeen three hundred and twenty three. Henry Young from Open Field. Thank you, Henry. As I mentioned earlier, I uh, got a bit wet at the uh, Midlands show on Wednesday. And as Sean Sparling said earlier, the ground is very soggy now, just about everywhere. So uh, what's the coming week got in store for us? The Farming Programme. Five-day forecast. Well, today is uh, overcast, cloud building through the day. Seven Celsius the high, the wind from the north, northeast, six gusting at 20 miles an hour. Overnight, staying cloudy at first, though uh, we could see that cloud breaking first thing tomorrow morning, so it could be a frost as you wake up in the morning. Three Celsius generally the low tonight, the wind starting from the east at about 10 miles an hour, and then from the uh, southeast first thing tomorrow, again 10 gusting at 20 miles an hour. Tomorrow looks like being a sunny day at the moment, a little bit chillier, 6 Celsius at best. The wind from the south-southeast at uh, 7 to 10 miles an hour, gusting occasionally at 15 miles an hour. And then overnight, once again, it's going to be clear skies. That does mean a frost in places, lows generally just above freezing. The wind from the south at about 5 to 10 miles an hour. Tuesday is a cold, chilly day. Plenty of sunshine, but highs of around 3 Celsius. The wind from the southwest, again between uh, 7 and uh, 15 miles an hour. Clear skies, so another frost likely overnight as temperatures reach freezing point Tuesday into Wednesday. That wind from the west-southwest at about 10 miles an hour. And then uh, Wednesday itself, more cloud. That will push temperatures up a little bit with that cloud cover. 6 Celsius the high. Very windy, though, from the west-southwest at 15, gusting at 30, maybe even 40 miles an hour come the uh, end of Wednesday itself. So that's the forecast, and that is it for November 2016. Yep, (laughs) four weeks to the big day five weeks to a new year we're back for the first sunday of december next week we're at crop tech this coming week as well so uh, we might see you there until next sunday have a good week's farming